Once you know the style, it's unmistakable. No 20th century composer has a bigger stock of clearly recognisable fingerprints than the great Russian symphonist Dmitry Shostakovich. There are quite a few of them in that passage we've just heard. The rapid tattoo rhythms on the side drum, like machine gun fire. The savage driving dance figures. The hard-edged orchestration, strident or brittle by turns. And finally, there's that four-note figure thundered out by the full orchestra in unison. In fact, that's more a signature than a fingerprint. Those four notes spell out Shostakovich's initials in the German musical alphabet, D-S-C-H. In German, S, E-double-S, is E-flat, and H is what English speakers call B-natural. So we have D, E-flat, C, and B. That may sound rather complicated, but the musical result is sharply distinctive and very memorable in whatever context we hear it, like this weird puppet dance from the third movement. And then there's this more frantic version from near the end of the finale. Passages like those, it's hard to resist the impression that Shostakovich is trying to tell us something, something deeply personal, perhaps. Plenty of commentators have tried to work out exactly what that might be. Speculation has been fuelled by Comments in Testimony, the book which claims to be, and may well be, Shostakovich's memoirs, as dictated to his colleague Solomon Volkov. Opinion is sharply, even violently, divided on the question of whether Volkov's book is to be believed. But according to testimony, the brief but explosive second movement is a musical portrait of Stalin, the Soviet dictator whose inhumanly cruel regime left its lash-like imprint on so many facets of Shostakovich's life and work. <laughs> Stalin portrayed in music? That seems to make sense. But these are selected passages from a large-scale, purely orchestral symphony, a symphony which comes with no explicit programme, despite the verbal pointers and apparent musical ciphers. And there are places where the clues aren't as helpful as you might expect. For instance, in the third movement, there's an enigmatic theme on solo horn, which seems to bring the lugubrious low-key dance to a sudden stop.
That horn figure has perplexed and fascinated musicians and commentators. People seem to feel that there has to be some hidden significance here. It's been pointed out that the horn's five-note motif is very like the horn fanfare which starts Mahler's The Song of the Earth. Shostakovich adored Mahler. So is there some musical analogy here? Is Shostakovich aligning himself with Mahler's world-weary, death-haunted spokesman? It's possible. Shostakovich, the survivor of Stalin's tyranny, had good reasons for sharing the singer's sense of the horror and mockery of life. And his music testifies over and over again to his obsession with death. The very first piece he wrote as a child was entitled Funeral March for the Victims of the Revolution. But more recently, there's been a revelation. This figure is apparently another cipher, like DSCH. The horn's notes are E, A, E, D, A. If you mix up the names of the notes with their names in tonic solfar, you know, do, re, mi, etc., you end up with e, la, mi, re, a, which spells out the name Elmira. Elmira Nazirova was a young Azerbaijani pianist and composer with whom Shostakovich was more or less obsessed at the time he wrote the Tenth Symphony. Later in the third movement, the Elmira motif and DSCH. Are brought together. At the climax, there's this dramatic juxtaposition. At the end of the movement, the combination is quieter, less antagonistic, peaceful even. Well, almost. While it's fascinating to know that the horn motif spells out the name of the woman Shostakovich loved, the woman who may have been his creative muse at the time he wrote the symphony, could you put your hand on your heart and say that that explains the music for you? 
that its mysteries are now solved? I can't. For me, it serves as a reminder that a symphony isn't simply a statement of beliefs, a historical record, or an autobiography in sound. Or at least, a good symphony isn't. So let's try a different tack, and try looking at it as music. Not pure music, whatever that might mean, but a kind of artistic creation which sets its own laws and works them out in a way peculiar to itself. If you're talking about the laws peculiar to a symphony, then the best place to start is at the beginning. In the humanist Beethoven tradition, with which Shostakovich firmly aligned himself, the symphony is about movement, evolution, musical narrative, which isn't quite the same thing as saying that it has a verbally explicit story. It's usually at or near the start of a symphony that we find the idea or ideas which form a springboard for the musical argument. And in Shostakovich's tenth, that's very much the case. The beginning is unusually spare, even for Shostakovich, who could be positively skeletal in some of his later works. Quietly, and in even crotchets, cellos and basses present a six-note motif, which seems to emerge from the depths of the orchestral texture. Simple as that is, it can be broken down into two distinct elements. First, there's the three-note ascent across the interval of a minor third. And then comes another three-note ascent, covering a wider interval this time. It spells out what the textbooks call a diminished triad. There's a brief pause. Pregnant silences count for quite a lot in this symphony. Then the same figure is heard again, only this time it sounds a minor third higher. In other words, it starts on the upper note of the first three-note ascent. But as you may have noticed, the last three notes are slower this time. The last note holds on for a little while, then the cellos and basses continue to develop that first three-note ascent, sometimes turning it back to front so that it falls. That's just the bass line, however. By this time, Shostakovich has brought in the first violins and violas, also down near the bottom of their range, playing long, sustained notes. Here's the whole of the spacious opening paragraph. Despite the pregnant silences, there's a magnificent sense of growth here. The two parts of the opening motif go on evolving, creating much longer lines.
as you'll have noticed, the lead there is taken mostly by the bass instruments. In Russian music, bass voices have a special significance. Think of the great bass roles in Mussorgsky's Boris Godunov and Khovanshchina, or those long bassoon and cello threnodies in Tchaikovsky's symphonies. So it could be that the message of this music, if that's quite the word, has two aspects. First of all, Shostakovich has made it clear that a powerful musical argument, or narrative if you prefer, has started. Its spaciousness indicates that we're in for a substantial work. At the same time, that very Russian concentration on expressive bass sonorities could be read as indicating something else, that this narrative is in some way connected with Shostakovich's own country and its people. There's something else that's rather striking here. We're several minutes into this first movement, and the only sounds we've heard, apart from the telling silences, are those of the stringed instruments. In textbook terms, what we've just heard is the symphony's introduction, setting up important motifs, creating tensions, but preparing at the end for the arrival of the real first theme in the home key, E minor. Shostakovich gives this theme to the clarinet. That may not sound like a bold stroke in itself, but after all that low-pitched string music, the change in colour is quietly electrifying. A new kind of voice has begun to sing. After that brief, poignant clarinet solo, Shostakovich returns to the sound of strings alone. The violins go on evolving new forms, but notice how the accompaniment is still dominated by three-note figures. That one tiny fragment goes on carrying the music forward, constantly relating its searching melodic lines to the very first sounds of the symphony. Keep that rocking major-minor figure at the back of your mind. It's going to be important later on. But now the movement seems to quicken, although the basic pulse remains the same. The swinging three-in-a-bar momentum carries the music to a magnificent, impassioned climax before it falls back again to the clarinet theme. For all its passionate expression, this music has the grandeur and formal inevitability of a great arch.
From what we've heard so far, we might suppose that Shostakovich's Tenth Symphony is going to be one of those works in which musical logic is preeminent, without feeling too disturbed by nagging questions of extra-musical meaning. But if something were to disturb that elegant and inevitable process, music with strong pictorial associations, for instance, then it would be different. At the heart of this first movement, there's an even more magnificently sustained build-up, once again woven skillfully from motives we've already heard. But so far, Shostakovich has relied on the same relatively narrow range of orchestral colour, exploiting subtle differences of tone, and making even familiar instruments sound surprisingly new, like the clarinet in that first theme. But in the long build-up at the core of the movement, the texture is suddenly invaded by something new, martial rhythms on a side drum. It's an unmistakably militaristic sound. <laughs> The side drum's sudden intrusion is all the more striking in a movement which has deliberately avoided coloristic or pictorial effects. Knowing what we know about the Soviet Union's violent history, about the effects of repressive, dehumanised regimentation in Shostakovich's Russia, we're likely to experience this as the invasion of a work of art by sounds from the all-too-real world. Interpreting this movement as a purely musical narrative may have been just possible to begin with, but now that approach simply won't do any more. All the same, there are musical processes at work too, processes which can't be so easily explained in programmatic or biographical terms. Do you remember that sadly rocking major-minor figure from earlier on in the symphony? At the end of the first movement, Shostakovich uses that figure as the thematic skeleton for an astonishing piece of orchestration. The movement seems to be winding down, with the cellos and basses once again brooding on the six-note motif that started it all. Suddenly, in comes a sound quite unlike anything we've heard before. Two piccolos.
There's something unearthly about that. After so much dark, bass-heavy melodic probing, here's an incredibly bright sound. The piccolos turn that rocking figure into something like a musical lullaby. It's a wonderful surprise, and the use of the rocking idea to stabilise the music and bring the movement to an end is masterly. But what does this mean? A poignant depiction of innocence after so much sombre experience? Well, surely one of the things that's so fascinating about this ending is that it's so enigmatic. There has to be something more here than a simple matter of arranging a final cadence in the home key. But as to what that something more might be, all we get from Shostakovich is a sphinx-like smile. There might be a clearer pointer to non-musical meanings at the beginning of the next movement, a compact, ferocious allegro. Well, there at the end is our old friend the militaristic side drum from the climax of the first movement. And there's something about that leading musical phrase that might be significant too. If there are such things as archetypes in music, that's one of them. It comes from the beginning of what for many Russians is THE Russian opera, Mussorgsky's Boris Godunov. Mussorgsky was one of Shostakovich's artistic heroes. One of Shostakovich's acts of homage to Mussorgsky was to make his own version of Boris Godunov. For a long time after Mussorgsky's death, the opera was only played in Rimsky-Korsakov's edition, which many Mussorgsky lovers felt muted and over-refined the originalities of Mussorgsky's score. According to testimony, Shostakovich felt that it amounted to more than that, Rimsky-Korsakov softened the point a bit, says Shostakovich, if it is Shostakovich. He muffled the eternal Russian problem of the upstart Tsar versus the embittered people. The people are here, and the rulers are there. The rule forced on the people is immoral and fundamentally anti-people. That's Mussorgsky's position, and I dare hope that it also is mine. So perhaps these musical quotes and pictorial elements in the second movement of the Tenth Symphony are meant to emphasise that common ground. It's not exactly a musical portrait of Stalin, but of the eternal Russian problem, of which Stalinism was only the most recent manifestation. It sounds good, but I have a slight problem with it. You see, this musical depiction of evil doesn't fill me with horror or revulsion. I find it exciting invigorating, a thrilling release of tension accumulated during the long first movement, and I don't think I'm alone in that. It reminds me of a question which often used to be asked in this country during the permissive 1960s and 70s. 
When does the depiction of violence stop being pure depiction and shade over into glorification? spent a little while on the third movement and the question of its enigmatic horn motif, the Elmira theme. It's been pointed out that when that theme appears for the first time, so soon after Shostakovich's own musical initials, DSCH, there's also a quotation from one of Shostakovich's settings of verse by Alexander Pushkin. The poem in this case is called, wait for it, What's in My Name for You? Sounds pretty conclusive, doesn't it? But what exactly does this tell us? Can this be the meaning of this movement, or at least this passage? If so, why does the Elmira theme summon up the ghost of the first movement, the very theme which set the whole musical argument in progress? theme appears 12 times, always at the same pitch, with the same rhythm, the same orchestral colour, horn or horns. I'm sure some ingenious person will be able to relate all this to the background circumstances. The unchanging nature of the theme represents Elmira's unbending attitude towards Shostakovich. Its summoning up of the first movement's motivic springboard is a tribute to her as muse. Look, you set this whole process in motion. But does any of that really sound worthy of this music? We can't explain this in terms of a purely formal musical argument. It seems to cry out for some kind of interpretation. But in the absence of any thoroughly satisfactory answer, why should we bother ourselves with half-answers? As the enigmatic novelist Franz Kafka once put it, there are times when a riddle is just a riddle.
there are even bigger questions when we come to the finale. At first, we seem to have returned to the bass-led brooding of the first movement. But then a keening oboe adds a different kind of elegiac note. Although the oboes have been pretty busy in this symphony, that's the first time the oboe has a prominent solo. Shostakovich has carefully reserved that sound for this moment, late in the piece, as though to underline the poignancy of that theme. But organic musical transformations are going on here too. The oboe presents this figure like a kind of heartfelt sigh or an anguished rhetorical question. This is extended and developed as the oboe hands over to a solo flute, then a piccolo. Then, clarinet and flute dwell on the broad intervallic outline of that phrase, a fifth. Then something really extraordinary happens. As clarinet and flute dwell further on that fifth, the clarinet suddenly seizes it and turns it into a rapid dotted rhythm. Almost before we've had time to register this, the strings are rocketing away in a major key allegro. The elegiac tone has simply vanished. This is emphatically not an organic transformation. It's as though Shostakovich has seized the music by the scruff of the neck and whisked it off, the clarinet squawking with disbelief, into a routinely happy Moscow circus dance. It's clearly meant to be a jolt. So what's happened? Tragedy, violence, bitter humour, they haven't been overcome, simply dropped like an inconvenient heavy weight. And just when we seem to be getting accustomed to this new public holiday mood of collective rejoicing, 
things start to take a sinister turn again, with reminiscences of that savage scherzo, the musical portrait of Stalin. is the DSCH motif from the third movement, its most forceful statement yet. There are all sorts of possible interpretations for this new mood. Some say that Shostakovich is exposing the falsity of socialist realism, the dogma that tragic elements in works of art can be overcome by joyous depictions of Soviet socialist life, or to use the phrase of one-party apparatchik, art which affirms the ultimate rightness of reality. There's another possibility, that Shostakovich's mood was suddenly lifted by news of the death of Stalin in March 1953. The chronology of how and when the Tenth Symphony was written isn't certain, but it seems he finished it soon after Stalin's death in the summer of 1953. Maybe Shostakovich just felt like throwing his musical fur hat in the air. The defiant re-emergence of DSCH after the portrait of Stalin music would then be an expression of a kind of triumph. The monster's dead and I've survived. But again, none of this seems to me to be quite good enough. This music is so subtly ambiguous, so full of turns and twists which cheat and subvert our expectations. It's music which seems to suggest answers, only to challenge them with yet more riddles. Trying to extract a clear, consistent, extra-musical interpretation from this movement in particular reminds me of something Solomon Volkov wrote. It's his description of what it was like trying to find clear meanings in what Shostakovich said to him during their conversations for the book Testimony. The true meaning of his words, says Volkov, had to be guessed, extracted from a box with three false bottoms. Of course, we've only Solomon Volkov's word for it that he did find the true meaning. What if the box with all those false bottoms is the meaning? In the final pages of this symphony, the DSCH motif plunges headlong into a wild major key dance. Some have heard this as tragedy, the composer compelled to dance against his will with a desperately fixed grin. Others have heard it as a great shout of relief that now, perhaps, with Stalin dead, the thaw can begin. For my part... Well, as I think of the violent disagreements, if that's strong enough, between the various factions in the world of Shostakovich scholarship, as I read the protagonists' furious denunciations of each other, as virulent as anything in the old Stalinist press, a picture forms in my mind. I can't help wondering if Shostakovich isn't sitting somewhere, watching it all, chuckling wickedly. <laughs> ¶¶ 